Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Today I'm excited to bring Dr. Mike Pekarski back onto the podcast. And Dr. Pekarski and I are going to be discussing a variety of things, but ultimately it comes back to our take on a lot of the things you see online right now. Online training, online PT, different things like that. And uh, you know, ultimately I think we both kind of conclude that we are for these kind of things. In fact, we both kind of do them ourselves. However, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And we discussed that in the episode today. I know you're going to love this episode, but before you listen, head on over to Instagram and be sure to check out Mike Pekarski's Instagram page. Give him a follow. Check out his jujitsu course. The link is in the description below. You can find all of that great stuff below. Enjoy. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. I'm super excited to chat with you about oh, so many topics that we've uh, we've heard quite a bit about from Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and all those amazing social media platforms that it, it seems like every expert is on these days, Mike. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, so, you know, I don't know about you, but I've noticed this trend lately where, you know, social media is a very powerful tool. It's a great tool. Uh, it gives everyone a voice and gives everyone a chance to be heard. But unfortunately, for every good piece of advice I see out there, I see one that's just as equally poor or bad. And I've noticed that there's this trend of a lot of athletes who have been to physical therapy or strength and conditioning who, you know, these professionals just don't seem to understand what the athletes needs are and how to provide for them. Have you noticed similar things yourself or... Yeah, well, I would say two things. I'd say one from a healthcare professional, you know, and, and this could be just the fact where people who use the typical insurance model, they're just going to whoever is easiest and not every physical therapy therapist is going to be the same, right? It's, you know, and, and I do think there's like a big issue with a lot of like people who are sports physical therapists, meaning that really they're just doing basic ortho. And they really have no business doing sport, but they they think they're doing sport. And I think that's uh, a big problem. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And um, I, I see that all over the place is you have an insurance-based model that offers sports physical therapy, and yet the physical therapy services are delivered through a tech or aid who has no formal education. And a lot of times the athletes are discharged before they even get to the return to sport part, which if you're calling yourself a sports PT, I'd imagine that's kind of the most important part of that is the sport. I mean, in addition to the patient and their needs, but how can you do sports PT if you don't consider the needs in the return to sport? Um, just seems like an oxymoron to me. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, you have to think, Again, just like how my brain, I break it up into like, you know, four different categories. We have like acute injury management. We have that subacute, which is generally where most PTs are pretty good. And then where I would say sport PTs really take over is that's like the transition to strength and conditioning. But keeping in mind, a injury is still there. And then that four is return to sport. So I think a lot of or a lot of PTs can do well with one and two, meaning there's an acute injury. You can manage it, manage pain and swelling. They, a lot of them are not good at three and four. Um, and some of it is just based, they, they say they, they, they do sports because they might work with athletes in those two phases, but really they have no business in 
working in that 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 return to sport or strength and conditioning phase. Yeah, why do you think that is? Is there just some kind of misunderstanding on what exercise does and the loading principles behind it? Or, you know, is three sets of 10 going to take us all the way to where we need to be? Or where do you think we kind of miss that as a profession? Well, I think uh, I think a lot of that's going to be based on insurance because insurance a lot of times doesn't care if like you're an athlete. Like for me, obviously, I, I do jiu-jitsu. They don't care if your athlete can get back to jiu-jitsu. They're like, can you go back to your job? We're done. So a lot of it is based on the insurance model, which is insurance isn't going to pay anymore. And then the problem is, is once you're paying, you know, if you have insurance and you're going through this insurance model and insurance doesn't cover anymore, now you have to pay cash. Well, let's say you have like a $30 copay, which is, which is, you know, probably in a lot of people still considered steep. You know, and then like now they're, if they wanted to continue cash, it's like 200. Well, they're not going to want to spend $200 when they just were spending 30. You know what I mean? So I think some of it is insurance based on that. I think a lot of physical therapists don't really go that extra step because they're like, what's the point of knowing hmm. return to sport and strength and conditioning? Cause we're not going to use it. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and even though like you do see a lot of physical therapists that get their CSCS, which, you know, you know, we could talk about credentials and how, if they matter or not. Um, but I know, I know that there are some people that just, you know, they took the test to add the letters, but they still don't actually understand strength and conditioning. It's like, you know, they, they know enough to pass the test, but like, can they actually program? Like, do they understand? And I, I think, and I've worked with people, I had coworkers that were CSCS and like, they, they, they had no business, you know, programming anything with the barbell at all, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. To your first point on the insurance-based model versus the cash-based, I mean, plain and simple, you ultimately have to provide the value that that person is paying for. So if you're going to charge them $200 a session, provide $200 of value at minimum. Ideally, you go above and beyond. If you're just someone who goes through the motions every single day in PT and delegates your treatment to a tech, I'd imagine it's a lot more difficult to get a patient to spend $200 out of pocket when they come in, they do the same stuff every time and you don't even spend any time with them. I think the more you get involved as a provider, the more likely your patient would be to actually see the value in continuing care after the end of the insurance-based model. Um, and I think you're right too. You know, A lot of PTs don't have experience in the strength and conditioning settings. Maybe they've never worked as a strength coach. Um, and to your point, I think a lot of certification programs out there are great, but I've also seen people who go out there and get them just to put the alphabet after their name. And unfortunately, we live in a day and age where we think that more letters after the last name means better provider when, you know, just because someone has the book knowledge for it doesn't necessarily mean that they know how to apply it and use the practical side of it, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean... <laughs> So I, so I have my OCS, which for people who don't know is an orthopedic clinical specialist. I don't know. I mean, I, I still go back and forth. Like, was it worth it? Because I've never, ever had any patient come to me because I was an OCS. No one's ever cared. So, you know, obviously I, I still think it was probably worth it because it forced me to learn things that I probably wouldn't have sat down and spend the effort. So overall, I became a better physical therapist because of it. But, you know it's it's not like definable. Like I didn't make more money, no patients. So, you know, for, for people who go out of their way, you know, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to put the person first. It's not just a business or profit driven model. Um, and I like to joke all the time, if you wanted to get rich, you probably shouldn't have gone into physical therapy. Um, you know, un <laughs> unfortunately, it's not the most lucrative field, but it is one of the most rewarding fields in the sense that you can take someone all the way from acute injury, all the way back to where they want to be, whether that be sport specific or life specific or whatever, if you do it right. And ultimately, um, it, it's unfortunate that we're seeing a lot of people um, do it. I, I wouldn't necessarily say wrong, but just in a way that isn't consistent with producing the long-term results that we look for. Absolutely. Um, I can't even begin to tell you how many clinics I've seen too, where, you know, patients get better after doing like that phase one, phase two intervention, like you outlined, and then they discharge them. And then three months later, they walk back in the doors with the same issue. And it, it's just sad to me how few providers actually teach their patients how to manage things and how to prevent them from coming back, right? Like, I'd imagine when you work with your patients, your goal is to try and get them to a point where they don't have to see you again, Mike. Absolutely. My, my job, you know, it's funny. I work with someone like, oh, I could do this beforehand. I'm like, my job is to make you better than the injury because prior to the injury, it wasn't good enough, right? Something happened, like your body wasn't ready. Like you should be better than you were before the injury. You know, and as you said, like our job isn't necessarily to create this thing where people have to use me forever. It's I want to give them the tools where they can help themselves. So if they want to see me again, hopefully it's for a new issue, not the same issue that keeps getting re-aggravated because that means I didn't do my job. Right. Or maybe they want to continue with some strength and conditioning type stuff, because as you mentioned, you have a black belt and not many PTs carry a black belt and work with martial arts athletes. So you kind of have this unique lens that you get to work through in that you can relate to the athletes because you go through what they go through. And that provides you a very unique lens to program from and, uh, you know, develop unique exercises and movement patterns and just training uh, considerations in general from. And I feel like that's something we don't see in the PT world at all, really. Yeah, I, I do think that the, like the niche physical therapist, like this performance therapist who's like kind of like the you know the combination of that old school orthopedic physical therapist but then they also care about this new school return to sports so they they learn the things that i i feel that many people don't i think that's growing but it's still like i would say you know like when i went like i didn't go to physical therapy school and like think that i was going to create this this niche it was just you know, it just kind of like evolved naturally. Um, so I would say in the last, I don't know, I've been a PT for eight years. So it's like within the last eight years where we're actually seeing this kind of like trend emerging. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I got to ask you, how do you feel PT should go about combining that old school tissue healing, acute injury management with the new school, you know, overload strength and conditioning model? Like, where do we draw the line between those two things? Because I feel like it's pretty easy to tip the scale one way or the other. I mean, I guess it's just like clinical decision making, right? It's like, when, when are they done with the, you know, what, when is injury far enough, right? So we have to do a combination. So personally, when I'm working with someone, it's a combination of tissue healing, which isn't something that we can necessarily rush. How long has it been since the injury? What type of injury was? Does that, do we think that the injury is at a point the injured tissue is strong enough 
to start to initiate some of these sports specific strength and conditioning movements. And then when you start doing strength and conditioning, what is appropriate, right? It's like, you know, you have someone who's a month out of an ACL surgery, we're not going to start loading them with like a heavy barbell squat. You know, we, we want to get them there, but it's like, when is it appropriate? So I, and I think this is where a lot of like um, these social media influencers get in trouble because there's, there's people that said, I had an injury. I did this, but it's like, it's the wrong phase. You know, it's like, you know, maybe someone you, you have, you know, ACL reconstruction, at some point you should get back to lifting, but when do you do it? And and I think a lot of these trainers that aren't physical therapists, they're kind of, because they don't understand injury management, they are giving improper advice because they don't know the person. They're just giving general advice. But, you know, that's why in medicine, general advice is usually pretty shitty, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> which is just resting and icing. Why do you say resting and icing? Because like, I don't know this person. I don't know the injury. How can I give them more advice? You know what I mean? I need more information. I need to know what's the injury, what's their history, what's their goals, you know, what's their previous medical history for me to like actually be able to give them like specific advice to them. Yeah. Yeah. You have to dig deeper and you have to know more and you're right. You know, to your point, there is certainly a booming market in the online training world. I think it's a billion dollar industry now. And I, I completely agree. I've seen a lot of posts where, you know, someone had back pain and they just started doing heavy Jefferson curls and magically their back pain went away. Um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, these one or two exercises that some of these individuals continue to promote, I'm sure that's actually the magic pill and that's the fountain of youth and Holy grail. And that's all we ever need to do from a training uh, standpoint, you know, um, it's it's crazy to me that we're kind of in this world where we have so much information available and yet there's just so much bullshit for lack of a better way to put it out there yeah. absolutely and you know really there's not a great way to you know if you're the average individual scrolling through social media it's kind of difficult for you to discern what's right and what's wrong because Everyone has credentials. Everyone has letters after their name anymore. Um, you know, I've seen great advice from strength and conditioning coaches. I've seen some strength coaches that I might trust to program a session for an athlete over a PT any day. And on the flip side, I've seen PTs that program better than some strength coaches. You know, you mentioned before that the letters don't always, um, you know, be they're not always the make or break thing. And I think that goes across the board for online trainers and PTs for that matter is just because you have that credential doesn't mean you've earned the right to do what you're doing online. Absolutely. And I, and I think the the dangerous thing is you said, is that the, the random person scrolling doesn't know any better. And, and I'm even more worried about the people who they watch this online rehab and they're essentially they're trying to like create their own rehab program through what they found on Instagram, which is like a, just a terrible, dangerous idea. You know what I mean? Because what they did is like, oh, well, this information's free. Well, again, unfortunately, the best things in life aren't free. Like it might be free. That doesn't mean it's good advice. It's adv advice, you know? So, you know, maybe, you know, th there are people that might respond to it, but I would say overall, like, you know, having specific programmed, uh, you know, interventions is going to always be just some random stuff that you find online. Exactly. And, you know, if someone has an injury, how do you even know what the injury is, right? Like if you're given the Jefferson curl for lower back pain, yeah. what if someone, you know, blew a disc in their lower back and they're actually more of an extension bias 
and heavy loaded repeated flexion is actually the thing that pisses it off even more. You know, that's a weird spot to find yourself in as the strength coach or trainer who's trying to help people rehab from injury. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I think that's the problem is, you know, I think trainers hopefully realize like what they do and, and what is not their scope. And, and I think that a lot of these online trainers are kind of like trying to kind of get into this injury management uh, scope, which is which is they've not they've no business being in. Um, and I, like I said, I think it's dangerous. Yeah, it definitely is. And I do think there is a, you know, I don't want to be super pessimistic throughout the whole episode. I do think there is a brighter side to this. I do think that the online training world has an upside, you know, it's going to provide access to training to a lot of people who probably wouldn't get it otherwise. And, you know, looking at the way America's health is going, I do think people need to exercise more but do you have any kind of concepts for how online trainers should do that safely or how an online trainer can actually, you know, assess someone in some capacity online and decide, hey, maybe this person should go get looked at by someone before we start with them? Yeah, I mean, so like so I, I work both as a physical therapist and I do some some performance training for, you know, uh, combat athletes. So. I, I do actually do online programming for people. And generally it's like, you know, it's, you know, I'm still going to do some type of movement assessment. I'm going to talk to them with their goals, what they're doing, make sure they're appropriate for that phase of treatment. Right. So if I'm working with someone that had an injury, most often I have them go to their phys like their in-person physical therapist first, they do that phase one and two, they get discharged. And again, I'm, you know, I'm kind of like the role of a personal trainer who understands injury management. So I'll still do that. And, and, and we can do a lot of stuff online, but there's some things I cannot do online, right? Like there's like, I can't palpate them. I can't assess, you know, like what's the integrity of that, of that ligament, you know, like that's stuff I cannot do. So, you know, again, that, that I don't do it. So I just say, Hey, if you want to work with me, go see a local PT first, get discharged. And then I can take over when you would again, go see that, that uh, personal trainer. But I understand injury management, but I also understand your goals because I primarily work with combat athletes. Yeah, exactly. And I really like that model because first off, you get to spend your time doing what you are best at, which is kind of that phase three, phase four that we talked about earlier. And, you know, as you mentioned, most PTs are very good at acute injury management. We can usually treat pain and get things feeling better in a quick manner. Um, so if you let them kind of take the what I'll call the boring stuff, at least from where I'm sitting, you know, I don't I don't really like the hot pack. I don't really like the the ice, the ultrasound, the massage, all that stuff. Like I would much rather cut that stuff out of my daily uh, practice if I can um, and delegate that to someone else. And then I get to spend more time doing the stuff that I feel a little bit more trained with, a little bit more experienced with. And the stuff that I know other people might not do the same job with. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say on the online piece as well, it doesn't just stop with training alone. I feel like there's so much other advice for athletes online, whether it be related to diet and nutrition or sleep and all these other things. And, you know, I, I'd like to say that although we're a physical therapist profession, you and I, there's a lot more to it than just the physical side of exercise. All these other factors come into play, especially in a sport like jujitsu, where you have your background there. 
Uh, do you feel that most online trainers and online gurus and experts have been offering good insight and good advice and evidence-based stuff as it relates to those topics like nutrition and sleep and stress management and the mental side of the sports, or are most of them still just kind of speaking from experience and hitting that N equals one and what worked for them is going to work for everyone kind of thing? I mean, I would imagine like, you know, again, if you're a trainer, you understand exercise. So those people that go into nutrition and sleep management, they probably don't have the proper education. They're probably not evidence-based. So it's more likely going to be based on like what they know. And, you know, like, so like for people who who don't know, jiu-jitsu is a weight class sport. I've done mixed martial arts. So I've, I've actually, before I was a physical therapist, I was considering going the nutrition route. I was actually going to like, you know, try to become a, you know, a, a nutritionist. And then, you know, my uncle talked me out of it and it was a great decision. <laughs> but even then, um, you know, even with whatever background I think I have, I, I still, I, I tread carefully with the education that I have, knowing what my weaknesses are. You know, I remember I worked with a coach and, you know, he gave nutrition advice to this one fighter and this guy had to go to the hospital just because he, he ended up, I mean, again, the, the fighter wasn't listening to the coach hundred percent, but he was still, the coach gave him advice. He kind of like took it to a different level. He like stopped eating protein. He had to get hospitalized. It was, it was actually like a big issue. And that like kind of made me realize like you should really know what you're talking about if you're going to give advice. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And as we mentioned before, it's very difficult to find out, you know, who's giving good advice versus poor advice. Um, I was looking at different sleep coaching certifications earlier today. And there was one that came up that looked very well put together, or at least the marketing makes it look very well put together. And there was another one that actually had a um, a free sample download. And um, it was funny because in the free download, um, there was three citations and all of them were books written by authors, not textbooks, not, uh, you know, research articles, just books. Um, and most of it was speaking from personal experience by whoever designed the course. Um, so is, is there some kind of litmus test that you have people use or that you use yourself to kind of help discern what advice online, uh, in those spaces is good and helpful versus what is just, you know, completely out of left field? You know, I don't know if I have any like good advice on who to listen to. Cause some of it, again, you know, like, cause we're medical professionals. So like, we have a, a better understanding of like, look at literature, like, is this study like legit or is it crap? You know, we look at this person and their training, you know, again, are they citing evidence or are they just, you know, talking about expert opinion, which which we know is at the bottom of the the, the evidence pyramid. So people relying on this expert opinion is still the lowest level of evidence. Right. So, you know, it, it depends on what you're working on. But um, somebody who actually will will cite research, hopefully mean like makes me a little bit more hopeful that they're going to be a bit more credible. Yeah, definitely the citation and not just citing it, but hopefully taking their time and doing the due diligence to make sure that, you know, they read the whole article and understand it because I see a, a subset of people, I call them the PubMed rangers. They go online, they go into PubMed, they find a conclusion that agrees with what they want to say and they post that. Yeah. And they forget the methods, they forget all the other aspects of the study. They just said, well, the conclusion says what I want it to say, so therefore I'm going to cite it. You know, and I, I've speaking of, I've seen someone who did post re research and I was kind of curious and I, and I went to an article and I was like, I don't really see where they got this conclusion. So I was like, 
again, now I'm questioning this person, you know, like how credible are they? Cause, cause I am not getting the same point from reading the article, you know? So uh, just because you cite research and that's why I feel like for me personally, like, so I, I try to cite research as much as I can when post when I can, you know, and, and I use like proper methods. So someone can actually like go find the article and read it themselves, you know, cause you know, you, you, you have those people that just put like the name of the author and then the, you know, the year. So like, for me, it's like, it's not easy to find. Like I still have to put a lot of effort in and then I can decipher, is this article bullshit or not? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, one of the other things I would say that I see a lot on your page that I really like is one, you're transparent in the sense that you post what you're doing on the day to day, right? I think recently you were at um, the revolution and you went like four and one or something like that. Um, and I like that people get access to what you're doing on the day to the day to day. You're not just someone who sits there and says, yes, I have a black belt. You're actually showing people that, hey, I have a black belt and I'm still training, I'm still competing because I think there's a difference between someone who has some kind of title and someone who has the title and continues to train and compete and push themselves to get to the next level. Um, and I would say the other thing I think that I really like from your page is you post a lot of very specific things. So for example, you might post like a MMA fighter's shoulder injury and then you do your best to break it down and you go in depth and detail. It's not like just a paragraph explanation. It's like you put your time in and you can tell that even if you aren't familiar with the medical field. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, like the, the hardest thing with with, with uh, the the MMA reporting is, you know, a lot of times I'm based on the information available. Right. So I'm not right. doing the diagnosis. So I have to kind of wait until the news reports what the injury is. Sometimes I might kind of I might just say this is my hypothesis of what I think is happening. And and I do get it wrong. Like that happens. You know, it's funny when people are like that was wrong. I'm like, yeah, that's OK. Like that's why it's hypothesis, you know. Um, we, we call it the practice of medicine for a reason, right? Yeah. You know, and as we're talking to the other trend I've seen, I like it. Um, I, I see a lot of student physical therapists and exercise science students making pages and sharing tips and advice and stuff like that. And again, I'm all for the promotion of things that, you know, put people into a healthier position, a healthier state of mind. I think that most people could benefit from more exercise. But I've also seen cases where students maybe take it a little too far. And, you know, maybe I was guilty of that myself when I was a student. I had an Instagram page. I had a few thousand followers. Maybe I pushed a few things too far myself. Where do you see the line going uh, in there for students, for people who are still in school, not yet licensed, not yet earned their degree? Is there a line for them as far as giving advice online and kind of, you know, commentating on some of these different injury videos and clips and that sort of thing? I mean, I would say, you know, like if you're like, okay, you know, like I was, I was looking at something on Instagram today and, and there was this one guy was posting, you know, how do you get your quads strong? And it gives various exercises that develop quad strength. And then he went into like, which exercises hit like the vastus medialis versus the vastus lateralis versus the rectus femoris. So I'm like, that's educational. It's cool. If you want to strengthen your quad, perfect. Right. Because he's not saying like, do this for knee pain. So to give an, and, and that's the thing that I'm more worried about is, you know, people say you have knee pain, do this exercise. Cause you can't say that. Like, why does that person have knee pain? If you didn't assess them, how do you know? And, you know, one of the things I talked about, it's not the, you know, a lot of times people are like, Oh, can you give me an exercise? Well, 
the the proper movement is one variable then we have to look at the intensity does the intensity match where they are and does that intensity and volume match meeting someone's goal so if you don't understand the goal you know like just doing the exercise doesn't really tell you anything you know there's no universal exercise that everybody needs to be doing it's what exercise is appropriate for that person based on their goals versus their phase of injury or you know or phase of training um and then with the proper volume and intensity and it's like you know you can't you can't tell someone you know you, you know, when i see someone and be like all right we'll do this exercise like three sets of 20 we're like why are you giving arbitrary like why like should you be doing three sets of 20? Like, what if like to get the adaptation that you're looking for, you need to do a hundred? Like, what if you need to do five? Like, why say three sets of 20? Like, that's just like a poor understanding of exercise physiology. Yeah, or they take that three sets of 20 and as you're mentioning, they give that to everyone and they don't look deeper into, you know, hey, maybe this guy's a jujitsu athlete and he's got to last a five minute round. Yeah. 20 reps probably isn't that is not enough of a stimulus to last a five minute round where it's kind of a, constant fight or flight mode the whole time. Yeah. Maybe they're working with a baseball athlete and it's a power-based sport. You know, you don't really need much endurance. Those 20 reps aren't really going to do you anything for baseball either. Um, so I completely agree with that point and really kind of diving deeper into the individualization standpoint. And, you know, I think it's funny we hit that point because I'm imagining you probably get quite a few DMs every day of people who are just like, hey, here's what's going on what should I do? Or, you know, Hey, what exercise should I do? My knee hurts here or something like that. Yeah. yeah it's yes, I do. <laughs> I get frequent DMS and always, always my, my answer is always, you need to get assessed by a medical professional, you know, and depending on who the person is, I might like let them a little bit no more like, you know, cause like one time uh, I felt bad because I'd like just commented like how you can't rely on this. And it was like, it was like the perfect storm. Cause like 10 minutes later, somebody DM me and asked for an injury. So I was like really pissed off. Um, and then like, so I like, I commented on it, like, don't be this guy. And then like, the, I ended up talking to the guy and like, we, you know, you know, he, he ended up appreciating, like, then I explained why I can't give him information because I don't know, this is what I would do. These are some of the things I'm worried about. So like, overall, like he left with a pleasant experience but it was just like terrible timing. Cause I was like really pissed off. I'm like, like, is this a twilight zone? I just said, don't post, don't, don't DM me for injury advice. And like 10 minutes later, I get a DM for injury advice. I was like, ah. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly, uh, it's funny how that works sometimes on the timing piece there, Mike. Um, and I would say as well, you know, kind of to your point there, I don't think any of us are perfect in the online space and online world. I don't know what I'm, doing online half the time um you know if people ask me oh do you have a plan for your content a plan for your comments um you know a plan for your podcast even i don't really plan stuff in advance you know you and i didn't sit here and outline this episode in detail and you know put five hours of work into making this the perfect podcast episode sometimes we just gotta let it ride and you know every now and then maybe we make a post that someone misinterprets or something like that and you know i think we're all trying to just be better in the online space but there's some things that as we've mentioned so far there's some things that are just blatantly wrong and blatantly misguided um and there's a lot of individuals out there who are unfortunately just looking for a paycheck from the online space as opposed to actually trying to have a positive impact and help others yeah absolutely and i would say the other thing too on that note is i've noticed a lot of people who um 
they seem to like pay for their following somehow. Um, I've actually had a few requests from individuals who I've denied on the podcast because they're like, look, I've got 30,000 followers on Instagram. I'm legit. I've got this, that, and the other thing. And then I noticed that even though they have 30,000 followers, their posts get five views yeah. or they get two likes. And when I start talking with them, they start talking about how they want to use the podcast as a platform for their own business gain. And I just kind of get misguided by these individuals, or I guess I, I should say, I don't understand these individuals who are going online paying, I'm assuming substantial amounts of money to blow up to 30, 40,000 followers almost overnight. And then trying to kind of come onto other platforms and grow their business through that. Have you seen similar things where like, follower count doesn't necessarily matter and follower count doesn't necessarily mean you're like the best provider out there or that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't think follower, you know, the, the, the amount of followers that matters at all, like, because there's some people that just get lucky. Like you put, you know, it's almost like infuriating because I'll, I'll see someone post and, and like something goes viral and it gets like 8 million views. So, you know, I was like, I've been working on this for like six years, like, you know, but anyway, the amount of followers you have doesn't necessarily mean the person's legit. And I think that sometimes people overemphasize, they think that follower counts matter, but you know, it, just because someone has a lot of followers doesn't mean that they're giving good advice. Yeah. Yeah. No, completely agree. And um, I, I think that's the other confusing piece to the online world is, you know, we look at trying to find some way to measure success. We already talked about, you know, the letters after the name and saying how, you know, having every certification under the sun doesn't mean that you're going to use them. But I think the other metric that people use, like we said, is the follower count. And unfortunately, that alone doesn't necessarily uh, make or break that individual. I will say, though, I have um, found some benefit to looking into what I would call the quality of the follower. And what I mean by that is if I find a page and I look at who's following it and I see names like, you know, Kelly Starrett, uh, Mike Pekarski, um, different pe people like that who I know personally and I can trust. And I know they've been in the field a long time and they kind of know the ins and outs. I usually feel a little bit better about trusting that account or that individual than if I notice that there's, you know, no one significant or no one that I trust uh, engaging with them, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Because if, if there's someone that you respect, if they follow the person, it gives them a little bit more credibility, like they actually might be legit versus some type of, you know, con artist. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I really want to get your insight on, you know, I've heard a lot of people outside of the PT world, and I've even heard PT saying that our profession is by nature hypocritical in the sense that, you know, one person will make a post out there about how, you know, IT band syndrome's overdiagnosed and too many PTs are saying the IT band is the root of all evil. And then they'll go and diagnose someone with PFPS because of a tight TFL IT band complex or something along those lines. So how do we kind of walk the line between, you know, politely and professionally um, giving insight and feedback to others uh, while also kind of minding ourselves and making sure we don't fall victim to our own quirks, if that makes sense. I mean, I think that's why the profession went evidence-based. I mean, you know, evidence-based, evidence-informed, whatever you want to think about it, because there's a lot of physical therapists that have been doing things for 20 years and they, they have not 
change their practice, right? You know, you know, like so perfect example. I was reading an article today. So I was talking about ACL healing with with cross bracing. If you asked me a year ago, like, does ACL heal? I'd be like, no, it doesn't heal. Like, there's a reason why you have to get it reconstructed. Well, now there's evidence that shows that the ACL can heal. Now, this cross-basing concept is starting to grow in Australia and New Zealand. It hasn't really come over to the U.S. or Canada yet. But, uh, you know, again, it's that's the point of evidence where, you know, we, we look at what does the evidence actually show? Like, you know, is something that we thought five years ago, is it still current or is that like just like an overused you know, or an outdated concept. Like, I think like maybe eight years ago with concussion management, they were still telling people to like rest in a dark room for like, you know, weeks at a time. Now we know that that's like a, that's terrible advice. You know, after like the first 48 hours, you want to start to move around a little bit. Um, so again, with, with evidence, as the field is growing, we get more information this way. We can say like, again, like we look at the literature, like, is it actually supporting that the IT ban is actually a thing or, or is it not? Yeah, no, I, uh, I love that point. And I think it's so funny. You referenced that ACL article there. I think it was published in British journal of sports medicine um, about two weeks ago. One of my patients who was coming to me for prehab ACL actually sent me a copy of that article yeah. because he was like, you've got to read this. It's so exciting. And it really, um, it really blew my mind. Um, because I'd never heard of something like that before. And yeah. yeah, you know, I think it's exciting how the field is constantly ever evolving. And I also think that, you know, to your point, I think it speaks volumes to the importance of having access to those clinical practice guidelines, those super thick, dense books. Um, there's times where I love them. There's times where I may or may not agree with the points that they make. But I can tell you right now that there's a lot of smart individuals who put a lot of time and effort and energy into making those happen. And if you're not sure about something, it's a better resource than just going off of the random guy on Instagram. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a, a thing. Like I might read an article or I might like, you know, listen to someone that, that I disagree with, but I, but I, for me to really disagree with them, I really have to see like where they're coming from. Like where did they come up with this claim? Because what if I read the paper? I'm like, Oh, wow. Like, I actually agree with this person or like, no, I see what they're saying and I, and I understand where they're getting this conclusion, but I still disagree because that's how you have a intelligent dialogue. It's like, you know, like you can't with Instagram, unfortunately, like I've had people sometimes complain that things are too short. I'm like, man, like I only could fit so many characters into a post. That's why, that's why I created a course. So I actually could talk as long as I feel like I need to, to get my point across. Yeah. And sometimes you have to go into that level of detail in order for people to understand it. And, you know, like you mentioned before, I'll come out and say it now. You mentioned before that, you know, it's not necessarily good to follow advice you see online uh, and put together your treatment program based on what you saw on Instagram. Um, and I would even say that applies to someone like myself. Like I might post you know, to highlight an athlete I'm working with, maybe we're working on say their lower back and we've got different exercises we're doing. That doesn't mean that you go and take those exercises and throw them in your athlete's next lower back, uh, you know, session if they've got the same uh, pain complaint, because you don't know what that individual's presented with to me. You know, maybe I've got someone who came in with hypermobility and I'm treating them with a lot of stability or maybe I've got someone who's got normal levels of mobility, but they're in a lot of lordosis. And I think there's an association between their lordotic positioning 
and their uh, symptoms, and I'm treating them with core stability. Two different things, but I'm still doing core stabilization. So if you don't understand that ins and outs and the deeper part of that, things that I'm not going to post on social media, then how do you know what I'm doing and why I'm doing? And I'll even say that I've become a lot more reluctant to even comment on others' posts online because I might not fully understand their intentions behind what they're doing with someone and I might not see the full picture. And if I don't see the full picture, I don't necessarily want to jump into making assumptions because then I'm going to look like the idiot and I might have just outsed someone who didn't really deserve it. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually interesting speaking about So I had a post on like weight cutting. There was a fight, uh, Alex Pierre, he got knocked out by Israel Asanya. Um, you know, Alex Pierre had uh, cut a lot of weight. So he's notorious. I mean, he since then he went up a weight class because and like he would have had an immediate title shot. So like that means it was a pretty brutal weight cut. And, you know, I had one comment, some guy, he's like, I'm a doctor. What you're saying is wrong. And then like I started like talking to the guy, I'm like one. And, and I didn't like rip, like rip on him too much because I was like, you know, I kind of set my point. I'm like, one, here are the references that shows what happened when you cut weight and how it affects your brain health. Two, we know that this guy had been knocked out and he hadn't been knocked out before. Three, we know that this guy cuts a ton of weight and he's going up a weight class. And then the guy stopped responding, right? It's, you know, it's like, it was just like, he was assuming because he's a medical doctor that he's more credentialed to discuss weight cutting than me, which is not true at all. Unless you're like a, a, you know, someone who like, that's your specialty. Like you study, you know, like kidney function or ringside management, like a medical doctor has like, like is going to have zero education on weight cutting. Right. So it was just like kind of interesting because again, like he's a doctor, I'm assuming MD of some sort. And he made a comment and then, you know, again, he stopped responding. So I'm assuming he realized that he was in the wrong and he stopped the discussion. Yeah. And I mean, to the point that we made earlier, you know, a lot of PTs may or may not understand the demands of athletes. I think that applies on a broader sense as well. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to work with so many amazing doctors and surgeons that way. But sometimes it's kind of difficult to understand the demands of the athlete if you haven't gone through it yourself. Um, and sometimes athletic uh, endeavors kind of defy what we normally consider as healthy. Um, you know, for example, I've seen um, different professional fighters will lock themselves in a sauna and sweat out eight to 10 pounds of weight so they can make weight for their next fight. And that's probably not a healthy thing. That's probably not a longevity focused thing, uh, but that's what the sport demands. So, you know, if you don't understand the demands of the sport and your only answer is to tell someone to stop doing it, then ultimately I feel like you're doing that individual a disservice um, unless you're in a spot where they're blatantly in a life or death situation. Um, I think it's better to try and find a way to make what they want to do as safe as possible and meet them where they're at, as opposed to just trying to shut everyone down from everything. Because, you know, even if you just limited everyone in the world to just walking, no one ever stepped foot on, you know, a sports court or a field or anything like that ever again, someone would still misstep and roll their ankle. Someone would still misstep and tear their ACL. Like some of these injuries are just going to happen regardless of what you're doing. So instead of restricting everyone to not doing anything, let's try and find a way 
to make what they want to do as safe as possible and kind of look at it more in the lines of a like blatant red flag versus like uh, maybe more of like a, what I'll call a yellow flag uh, proceed with caution kind of thing. Yeah. And you know, like what you said, like there's two ways we can look at it. We can take an activity and we can try to make it less dangerous, or we could also try to make the person more resilient to injury. And, and I think that that's an aspect that a lot of physical therapy therapists forget is if let's say you're working with an athlete, they have an injury because they're not doing what they were doing. Maybe they're not doing the sport or strength and conditioning. There's going to be some level of regression. They're going to get weaker. The tissue that's helping them to prevent getting injury is going to start to not be able to handle the same load. So like I had an old coworker, you know, they complained that, you know, where they're working now, a physical therapist had said deadlifts are the worst exercise in the world. They would never program it. Well, if you're working an athlete, and for whatever reason, that athlete, we feel like they would benefit from maximal or or heavy, you know, deadlift. And then you take it out. You pretend if you don't fill it with something else, now that a- athlete's going to ultimately be weaker and potentially could either perfect, uh, affect their performance or it can make them more prone to injury because now their body, you know, isn't getting the same stress. You know, so I think what the answer should have been was should, does it one, does this athlete need to deadlift? Two, if we decide that deadlift would benefit, what would be the potential consequences? Because if you say deadlifting as a whole is, is bad, but like, what if I'm doing like 50% my one RM? So it's like well below my maximum, like that should be safe. Versus if you're like, I don't think you should be doing your 95% one RM, you know, again, depending on the athlete, you know, like maybe they're right. Like maybe they don't need to be doing like, like one, you know, you know, like maximal deadlift, but that doesn't mean to just throw out the movement pattern. That just doesn't make any sense. No, I completely agree. And, you know, in today's day and age, there's other ways to make that lower intensity. Uh, I, um, I'll say there's ways to make that lower intensity exercise function like a high intensity one. So maybe I put someone at 30% one rep max deadlift, which is very light, but I put a BFR cuff on their, you know, quote unquote, involved extremity. Now, all of a sudden, I can get a significantly higher intensity with a relatively low load. Or, hey, you know, maybe I don't like the concept of a, you know, conventional deadlift with a barbell for this athlete, but I like the trap bar. Or, hey, maybe this athlete doesn't even need to do a double leg deadlift, but a single leg one would really help them out. Um, I think that there's so much value in that kind of formula that you just outlined there uh, from just asking yourself, what is my athlete going to need to do? You know, are they going to need to do this movement? And then if they are going to have to do it, how do I program it? You mentioned weight. Um, We could even throw the concept of tempo in there as well. That's something that I feel like most individuals completely forget about. Are they lifting it fast? Are they lifting it slow? And to your point about consequences, do the consequences or potential adverse effects of the exercise change if they move quicker or if they move slower? Um, I think those are all great points. And again, things that are often missed. Yeah. And and I think that's probably goes back to the, you know, as I said, PTs are great in phase one and phase two. If that, if that physical therapist doesn't actually lift themselves, how are they going to create an alternate movement? Right. And, And that's why you need to have like a good understanding of exercise with your progressions, regressions, substitutions. So you take something out, what do you give them instead? And, and you know, it, I'm, I'm not saying it's 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 rocket science, like, but again, it just, you know, 
that not not every physical therapist should be the physical therapist for the athlete for that reason because if they don't understand the demand of, of general exercise or the sport you know that athlete's gonna have a problem when they try to go back to sport yeah no i completely agree and um i think that's ultimately the importance of the progression back as well instead of just jumping in and saying well timelines up you're good to go uh, make people earn the right to return to what they want to return to um, and in a perfect world, we've got baseline data for that athlete before they were even injured. So we know where they were before. And as you mentioned, prior level of function is just absolute bullshit. So let's try and get someone to a point where they're beyond where they previously were. And again, unfortunately, the only way to do that is through a lot of hard work and sweat equity and a little bit of overload. You know, we can't change anything if we just play three sets of 10 clamshells all day long. Absolutely. And I think that that's not, that's like the one thing that I think why PTs would benefit from having more of a strength education is the concept of pro progressive overload. Because if you do the same intensity and the same volume, you're going to get to a point, you're not actually getting the adaptation you're looking for. So now you're just kind of like, you're doing nothing. Like you're, you're not actually accomplishing anything. So if you're with an athlete and you don't understand progressive overload, and you're like, we'll do this exercise of this clamshells for the rest of your life. But it's like, but why? How do we progress it? And if they don't understand that, again, you know, it's, it's going to be a problem because they're just going to get them to a plateaued state, and then they're just going to be stuck there. Yeah, and um, I'm interested to hear your thought on this. I've seen some different individuals online who promote, like, the clamshells at, like, the start of an exercise routine or the start of a workout to activate the glute muscles. Um, I, I kind of have my thoughts on that, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You know, do I need to do specific isolated movements to activate my muscles before I go into like a functional pattern or before I go into a sport activity? Well, usually how I program. So like how I start my session, how I do it myself, I do some type of joint and tissue prep. Again, yep. whatever, whatever that is, you know, um, and then I would follow with a, but again, how much effort am I going to put in? Right. Because you can take something like a clamshell. I don't really program them. Um, but again, like, are, are we doing it like a lighter load or are we doing it to actually get the adaptation of like, how are we actually trying to fatigue some of these glute muscles? So I would do personally, I do a joint, some type of joint prep followed by some type of tissue prep followed by some type of global movement and then whatever movement I'm doing. So, you know, like for me, if I'm doing jujitsu, I would do some type of joint movement and my, my, some like just some isometrics on areas that I think are beneficial. Then I do sport specific movements. If I was going to lift, then I would do my lift. Awesome. I like that formula, joint prep, tissue prep, and then functional prep. Um, and it's funny, you kind of outline it that way because I tend to develop something similar. Um, I don't have it as quite eloquently worded as you do. Um, but I like to kind of resort to some general movements as my warm up. You know, I don't want to give everyone a 20 minute warm up. Um, you know, sometimes it's simple. If you jump on the assault bike and give me three to five hard minutes, we yeah. basically just moved almost every joint in your body. We've got you warmed up. We've got your heart rate up. Sometimes that's all we need. And sometimes maybe we need to do a little bit more work with the bands um, I'm a big fan of various band walk variations as part of the warm up. Not really as a intervention. I don't think band walks have done enough 
from what I've seen clinically to really earn their place as like the staple intervention that's going to change lives. Uh, but as a warm up, yeah, great tool in the toolbox. And even mentioned the purpose of isometric loading in there as well. And I think that's something that we often misunderstand as PTs. And we could probably do a whole episode on isometrics in itself because, you know, the benefits from tendon loading to localized physiological changes to even some uh, analgesic effects are something that I don't think we fully understand. And we kind of resort back to concentric, eccentric most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Mike, as we start to wrap up here, I know we've hit a lot of different points. And, you know, again, like we said, we don't necessarily want to come out here and, you know, bash anyone or that sort of thing. But there's certainly some trends that we've both seen, I would say, in the online world that have started to become dangerous. And I feel like if we don't say anything soon, then it's possible that someone gets hurt or injured or maybe someone's injury just never gets better because they're following someone's advice without thinking about it first. Do you have any kind of other closing thoughts or anything else you want to add? No, I mean, I just think hopefully as a profession, we get better at explaining explaining like our thoughts and what's dangerous and what's not like you know the whole concept with knees over toe you know i don't know maybe like 15 years ago they're like well the knee pain knee hurts when it goes over your toes don't do that which is really you have to understand the physiology of, of why knees over toes was a problem right is because as your knee translates over your toes couldn't put more contact angle on the patella so if someone has an unhealthy patella it's going to be painful so in rehab we say well let's try to do pain-free movements the problem is is people don't understand where this concept's coming from they just say oh knees over your toes is bad and then they stop doing it and then you have a guy who creates instagram that says your knees should go over your toe he's absolutely right the knee should be able to go over his, over the toe i don't agree with his methods necessarily but I think as a profession, we need to actually like, you know, when, when we say something like spine flexion, like loaded spine flexion is bad. We need to understand like, why was that comment developed? And then we can kind of have a better parameter so we can, we can understand our goal. And we don't just use these broad terms and say, stop rounding your back, stop having your knees go over your tail. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And ultimately it takes us all, uh, you know, myself included kind of check our ego a little bit and say, hey, look, maybe I can learn something from this right now. Or maybe instead of, you know, going for the cheap shot comment, maybe I, you know, reach out to this individual and have a conversation on it and see if I can understand a little bit more. Because, you know, ultimately, if we all sit back here and just exchange blows all day long, we're probably not going to get any better as a profession. Whereas if we can start to, you know, have a little bit of the dialogue we might be able to actually change things. And, you know, I'm not going to say I'm going to change every, you know, 1970s um, treatment model, hot pack ultrasound massage, physical therapist. I'm not going to convert them all into modern meathead PTs or anything by any means. Uh, but I think that we could all learn something from one another uh, instead of just focusing on the negatives. Yeah, absolutely. Right, Mike, for people who want to find out more about you, where can they find you at? And where can they find your online course at as well? I know you have an amazing course that goes over the needs of jujitsu athletes, especially. Yeah, so the best way to reach me would be on Instagram. It's the word doctor underscore kickass. In my bio, you know, I have a link to my online course, which is a course for physical therapists and medical professionals on 
working, right? it's called treating the jiu-jitsu athlete. So, you know, one of the things that I'd found was that jiu-jitsu is a growing sport, um, spe specifically martial arts in general, mixed martial arts, it's growing. And one, I think most orthopedic physical therapists aren't really educated. And then two, even sports PTs, I do think that they're kind of like one step ahead but, you know, if, you know, you're working with a jiu-jitsu athlete and you're treating them like they're a field athlete, you're still going to be missing some key components. So I developed this online course. It's virtual. People can follow on themselves. Where I kind of talk about, like, what jiu-jitsu is, what are some of the, the movements and the positions that are required for jiu-jitsu. And then I kind of go into, like, what rehab looks like um, or how rehab, in my mind, return to sport because again, you know, pain is not the end of rehab, you know, just because someone doesn't have pain doesn't mean they're ready for sport. So I include a combination of what are some joint specific movements? What are some general functional movement patterns that athletes should be able to do? And what are some sport specific movements unique to jujitsu that an athlete should be able to know? I love that. That really ties back into what I would say the most basic principle of exercise and PT is, which is specific adaptation to impose demand. And if you don't understand the demands, then you're probably not going to hit the adaptation piece as well as you could have. Absolutely. All right, Mike. Well, again, I really appreciate your time and, uh, you know, huge thank you to you for coming back on the podcast the second time. This was a great episode and always appreciate your insight. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.